Well, I invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of John. The book of John. We have been looking into the Gospel of John since the beginning of this year, and we are in chapter 8 of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 8. And our scripture reading will come from verses 31 through 38. And the context is that he has been speaking with the Jews during the Feast of Tabernacles. This is near the end of his ministry, approximately six months from this period in time. He will go to the cross. So here in John chapter 8, verse 31. The word of God reads, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved. To anyone, how is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. Let's bow together in a word of prayer as we begin our study this morning. Father in heaven, we pray once again that you would open the eyes of our heart as we look into your word that we might understand and see and apply to our lives. May your spirit illumine our minds and grant to us understanding and help us, O oh Father, to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Ann Oldenburg wrote an article in USA Today entitled The Divine, Miss Winfrey. She writes, she has hosted the Oprah Winfrey Show. This was an article written in 2006. For more than 20 years, amassing billions of dollars in assets, attracting more than 49 million viewers each week in the United States. People look to Oprah Winfrey for advice on everything from genocide to Rwanda to the best-tasting oatmeal cookies. Many people also regard her as a spiritual leader. According to USA Today, by the late 1990s, Winfrey's focus was Change Your Life TV, and a New Age message was more prevalent. She preached, making the message of life, take responsibility, greatness will follow, the substance of the show. Keep a personal journal, purchase self-indulgent gifts, take time for you because you deserve it. The notes rang true for millions of viewers. Kathleen Falsani, religion writer for the Chicago Sun-Times, asked straight out, has Oprah become America's pastor? There is evidence to support this conclusion 
And Oldenburg writes, according to a November 2006 poll conducted by Beliefnet.com, which looks at how religion and spirituality connect with popular culture, about one-third of 6,600 respondents said Renfrey had a more profound impact than pastors on their spiritual lives. Chris Sadrock, pastor of Highland Street Church of Christ in Memphis, Tennessee, says our culture is changing as churches are in decline and the bulk of a new generation is growing up outside of religion. People are now turning up to the Church of Oprah. As you know, she had her last broadcast in 2011 or so. But Jim Twitchell, a professor at the University of Florida, believes that Oprah reverence makes sense. Religion essentially is based on high anxiety of what's going on around you. She pushes the idea that you have a life out there and it's better than the one you have now and go get it. It has to do with this deep American faith and yearning to be reborn to start again, unquote. Amazing, the power of the media, secular talk shows upon even what Christians watch whether it's from TV or from professors or from books or from the media, things will always and have always been competing for your attention about what you believe, about life, about what is true. Prevalent today is this idea of being spiritual, being spiritual, being inclusivistic, being tolerant of what others believe. Not uncommon whatsoever in a postmodern culture and society where people believe that truth is relative and that it depends upon what you yourself think. According to Josh McDowell, the belief or worldview, he says, forms values, which in turn drives one's behavior. The worldview is where we are falling down to most anywhere in the world. So what is the prevalent worldview, according to him, in America today? There is no truth apart from myself, quote-unquote. That's what even many young, quote, evangelical, fundamental, born-again Christians believe, he says. While 51% of evangelicals Christians did not believe in absolute truth in an earlier survey, the percentage went up to 62% who didn't believe in an absolute truth in 1994. And in 1999, it was 78%. And you know what it is now, says McDowell? One of the most staggering statistics in history of the church. 91% say there is no absolute truth apart from myself. Another study, he says, showed that only 6% of all teenagers in America, including Christians, said there isn't any truth apart from myself. It used to be that truth, especially absolute truth, was almost universally accepted. John MacArthur writes, nothing in all the world is more important or more valuable than the truth. And the church is supposed to be the pillar and ground of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15. History is filled with accounts of people who chose to accept torture or death rather than deny the truth. In previous generations, it was generally considered heroic 
to give your life for what you believed in. That is not the case anymore, unquote. Even Newsweek, an article in 2005, August, they wrote, even the contemporary church no longer believes in the gospel as the only way to heaven. 85% of American Christians, quote-unquote, believe there is, are other ways to heaven. 91% of Roman Catholics agree. Throughout human history, there has always been a war, a war against what is true, whether it's false teachers, false religions, personal experience, human philosophy, whether it is postmodernism, modernism, pragmatism, tolerance, or whatever it may be, has always attacked and sought to undermine what is true. People today believe that what is true is intensely personal, that it is personal, the idea that it's true for me, it may not be true for you, so don't you try to impose what you think upon me. How do you know what is true? Certainly a self-evident truth is that I, myself, or any other person isn't the source of everything that is true. I'm not perfect, and no, nor is anyone else. There must be an external standard an external standard of truth outside of myself, and that is a universal. That is universal. Just like gravity. Gravity is, affects everyone indiscriminately, no matter what you may believe. Just like oxygen is required by everyone that lives, no matter what you believe, just like the fact that you need water, no matter what you may believe, there are absolutes that apply indiscriminately to everyone, not dependent upon what you believe. Someone can sit there and hold their breath and believe all they want. I don't need air. I don't need air. I don't need air. I'm not going to be told by you that I need to breathe and they're going to pass out, and you're going to think, what is wrong with them? It's not a matter of whether or not one believes something that makes it true. It is a matter of what is truth and where can you find it? What is truth and where can you find it? In the book, The Truth War, the author writes, here's a simple definition drawn from what the Bible teaches Truth is that which is consistent with the mind, will, and character, glory, and being of God. Truth is that which is consistent with the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. Or even more to the point, truth is the self-expression of God. That is the biblical meaning of truth and the definition because truth is theological. Where do you find truth? The evidence overwhelmingly supports that the Word of God is the source of truth, whether it is fulfilled prophecy, whether it is archaeological evidence, the internal consistency, the preservation of the text, or whatever it may be, gives us preponderance of evidence that the Word of God is true. It is the same aim that John, the Apostle John, has here in this book. 
But when we look at the end of the Gospel of John in chapter 20, verse 31, he writes, But these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And here in this gospel, he presents Jesus Christ and the overwhelming evidence of his power, the profundity of what he taught, the life of Christ, so that we can believe and know what is true and that Jesus is the Son of God and that we might have life in his name. And that is what John does here today as he presents to us what Jesus says about himself, about the truth, and that the truth will set us free. Now, when we rewind back in the context of where this is at, in the context of which Jesus is speaking, we recall from the past number of weeks, this is at the Feast of Tabernacles, near the end of Jesus' ministry. About six months later, he will go to the cross. And the Feast of the Tabernacles, in the past weeks, we've realized that Jesus has presented himself as the Messiah. There was, the, there was the ceremony of the water pouring, remember? Commemorative, the Feast of Tabernacles is commemorative, also called the Feast of Booths, commemorative of how God led Israel through the wilderness for 40 years. And the people would go to Jerusalem, they would set up these little booths or tents and live there, and they would celebrate as a sort of a week-long thanksgiving with song and dance, there would be a water-pouring ceremony. People would sing praises and wave palm branches, and the priest would go out and pour water two pints from the pool of Siloam near the altar in remembrance and praise to God, how God provided water for them, and how he would what? How he would provide life. And in that backdrop, Jesus declared in John 7, 38, He who believes in me from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And how last week we looked at how Jesus used an evening ceremony, how he used an evening ceremony that was happening every night called the illumination of the temple in the court of women, just in the earlier part of this chapter, there would be once again singing and celebration, and there would be huge crowds there within the temple, and four large candelabra or torsiers would be lit as a powerful searchlight. The light would illuminate courtyards throughout Jerusalem, and the blazing lamps would remind the people of their commitment to God, and secondly, how God led them in the wilderness by a pillar of fire. And with that backdrop, Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It was also within earshot of the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders because what he was declaring, that he being the light of the world was a fulfillment of messianic prophecy, that he was the Messiah who had come because the rabbis had taught that the Messiah would be light. Light to the nations. And now Jesus here in verse 31 presents to them the truth. The truth, the test of true faith. Verse 31. 
So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Notice who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to these Jews. The Bible says to those Jews who had believed him. Who had believed him. But you look later on in the passage, verse 45. Because, he says, but because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Verse 47, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. In other words, there were those who believed him who were not of God, clearly telling us that their belief was merely superficial. There is a belief that does not save. There is a belief that does not save. And we know that. I mean, somebody can merely say, I, I believe, I, yeah, I believe. I live down in the south in Texas. You know what? Everyone would say that they are a Christian down there. I believe in Jesus, they might say, but they really don't have a relationship with God. What does it take to be saved? What kind of faith is saving faith? R.C. Sproul writes, We'll look at the definition of faith as given by the reformers, he writes, in order to show that faith is not merely casual acceptance of Jesus. The Protestant reformers, he writes, recognize the biblical faith has three essential aspects. Notitia, knowledge, essentius, the assent, the acknowledgement, and fiducia, which is faith. Notitia refers to the content the content of faith, or those things that we believe. We place our faith in something, he writes, or more appropriately, someone. In order to believe, we must know something about someone who is the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't be saved without knowing the gospel. You cannot be saved and have a relationship with God if you do not have knowledge. Then there is the ascension or ascensus or the conviction that the content of our faith is true. You could know about the Christian faith and yet believe it is not true. Genuine faith, he writes, says that the content, the notitia taught by Scripture is true. Lastly, fiducia refers to the personal trust and reliance. Knowing and believing the content of the Christian faith is not enough, for even demons can do that, James 2.19 Faith is only effectual if knowing about and assenting to the claims of Christ, one personally trusts in Him alone for salvation. True saving faith includes all of those elements and has a pattern of obedience and abiding in the Word of God, just as Jesus has just said, if you continue in my word, you are truly disciples of mine. Faith. It's defined by Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 to 3. Now faith, it says, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then verse 3, by faith we understand. We understand, and it goes on to speak of how the world was created. That's the classic biblical passage for the definition of what true faith is. The, by faith, we understand, that is knowledge. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, that is the assent. 
and fiducia. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. True saving faith involves our, our mind, our understanding. It involves our trust, the affections of our heart. True Christian can't say, well, you know what, I'm really excited. I'm, I'm so excited and I want to be a part of the church, but I don't understand what Christ did. Or they cannot say, well, you know what, I understand what Christ did and yeah, I kind of intellectually accept that. But without that trust and embracing of the gospel that Jesus Christ died for sins and that I trust him alone for salvation. The result of true faith is in verse 32. For Jesus says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. True disciples will know the truth, not only in understanding and embracing the truth of the gospel, but the Christian will be taught by the Spirit of God as the Spirit of God reveals to them and helps them to understand that is one of the ministries of the Spirit of God. Then rather being in bondage to sin, the truth of the gospel frees us from the slavery of sin, frees from the guilt of sin, frees us from the penalty of sin and frees us to do what is good and right for the glory of God. Not only does freedom come with a sense of being, being saved, freedom comes with a sense of growing and maturity. Freedom. Not just freedom to have salvation, but freedom to do what is good and glorifying to God with the right motive. We grow when we know what the truth is. We become more mature when we know what the truth is. Biblical change comes because a person knows and understands what is true. How does a person change? How, how do you change? How do you overcome the problems, the daily struggles that you have? Romans 12, too, tells us how people change. It says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, right? Do not be molded into the pattern of this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. A person changes from being a worldly person thinking ungodly thoughts to being a godly person in spiritual growth through the renewing of one's mind, through the knowledge of the will of God, through the word of God. And that is why the Bible says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. When with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Admonishing means to place the word of God into someone else's mind. In correction, we help others to understand what the word of God says. And the truth of the word of God as it dwells within a life, as it dwells within your life, begins to change you and molds you so that your patterns of sinfulness are done away with and you begin to think and act more like Christ. For example, the person who struggles with anxiety or worry, someone who is anxious or fearful, can turn to the Word of God 
And in Matthew chapter 6, be reminded of truth. The truth that God sets forth there in the Sermon on the Mount. That they don't need to worry. Why? Because God who clothes the lilies of the field in beautiful colors will also clothe you. The God who takes care of the birds of the air will also take care of you. That no one can lengthen their life by worrying or anxiety. And command after command after command repeatedly, do not worry for your father cares for you. They can turn to Philippians chapter 4 and they can learn to pray and cast all of their anxieties upon God in 1 Peter 5. And trust in God as it says in the book of Proverbs. And when they pray to God and ask God to provide for them and ask God to protect them and through prayer as Philippians 4 says, the truth of the word of God says what? That the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your heart and guard your mind in Christ Jesus. And the truth of the word of God begins to dwell richly within you and you will trust in God all the more and alleviate yourself from the worry and the anxiety because the spirit of God works in your life. person who struggles with finances can read time and time again how God provided for his people and they grow in their trust in God. And that is how biblical counseling works. That is how biblical counseling works. It is to use the word of God to help people to begin thinking in a godly manner to be transformed by the renewing of the mind as opposed to secular counsel, which may tell you all sorts of coping mechanisms to deal with it. When I was out of town, I was visiting another church, and the pastor was preaching through the Psalms, and he came to a psalm, and he was telling the congregation about how they needed to be sure to preach to themselves. And I knew what he was talking about because, you know, that's what we do. We tell ourselves, we tell ourselves different messages when things happen to us in life. You respond in a way based upon what you're taught, what you believe. When you fail at something, you can tell yourself things like, oh, I'm, I'm such a loser. I quit. My parents always told me I was no good. Or you might tell yourself, well, try and try again. Or that's why no one loves me, because I always fail. We as people tend to respond by the messages that we tell ourselves, that come from our heart. But God has given to us his word. God has given to us his word, and we continually tell ourselves the truth of the word of God. Like when we fail, we tell ourselves, you know what, I can't do it on my own. I need God. God is faithful. Or I don't have to worry. God is in control. Or I know by the grace of God, if he wants me to succeed, I can. Or God cares about me. Even though I may be rejected in such and such case, you know what? God still loves and cares 
for me as a child of God. And we tell ourselves what is true. We tell ourselves what is true, and that truth frees us from those sinful, self-defeating messages that come because we have false things that oftentimes we've been taught. And it keeps us living a godly life. And that is why it is so very important that the time-honored, tried-and-true way of growing and overcoming struggles is to read the Word, to be in the Word of God, to study the Word of God, to meditate on the Word of God, that your mind will be continually conformed, not to the pattern of this world, but by the transformation through the Word of God, by the power of the Spirit of God, because the truth of the Word of God sets us free, sets us free. When we entrust ourselves to God and we read His Word, the Word of God transforms our thinking. I remember one testimony from somebody that many of you know. She shared, I asked for permission if I might be able to share shared with our church about the life-changing power of God's truth. Many of you know her. She struggled, and she shared her testimony with our church. She struggled for a long time with anorexia. When she saw a physician and got secular counsel, basically they told her she had a sickness. She had a disease. Well, when you're given that as a sickness and a disease and you really have no hope, you just have to cope with it, you just have to live with that disease, then, of course, you're stuck because why you're sick. It wasn't until she learned from the truth of the Word of God that really this was a sinful form of behavior and that her self-perception, due to what she was telling herself and what the world told her, was wrong and not according to the Word of God, that mere revelation to her of the truth of the Word of God, that she did not need to live in this bondage to sin, was an eye-opening revelation to her that she could simply stop, that she would be all right. And simply knowing that truth quickly climbed out of her anorexia now lives in victory because why? The truth of the Word of God. That you're not sick. You need to repent of sin and how you see yourself. What the Word of God tells you changes your life and the truth set her free. For these Jews in this context, for these Jews who had confronted Jesus, they refused to accept. They refused to accept the truth, and they were self-deceived. And some will do that. Verse 33, the self-deception of their false faith. We're Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? See, the Jews believed that they were descendants of Abraham, and simply because they were descendants of Abraham, they had a free ticket to heaven. They had a free ticket because they were already part of the kingdom. They believed that, well, I'm, I'm a Jew. I'm a descendant of Abraham. Way better than any godly Gentile. They denied ever being enslaved and how short their memory was. 
I mean, since the time that they were in Egypt, they were enslaved to the Egyptians. And then after the 40 years in the wilderness and the civil war that occurred because they had split, Assyria in 722 conquered the northern kingdom and enslaved them. Then in 586 B.C., the Babylonians came and conquered Jerusalem and enslaved them again. Then Medo-Persia came and enslaved them, and then Greece became the world power, and then Syria, and now they were under the heavy hand of Rome. They were certainly enslaved, but they were in self-denial. They were self-deceived as to their own condition. As Romans 1 tells us about those who do not know God and neither give thanks or worship God, that those who do such things suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1.18. They suppress what is true. I'm not going to believe that. But that's how many professing Christians are today. They profess Christ They say, well, you know what? I grew up in a Christian family. I grew up in a Christian home. I've been to church all my life. I'm a Christian because in my mind, I I ascribe to those facts. But the problem is that's all there is. There's the knowledge and there's the intellectual ascension to that knowledge, but is there the trust and the embracing the faith through belief that Jesus is the one and only Savior. Some people's faith is merely an intellectual acceptance, an intellectual acknowledgement, and it does not save, much like these Jews. And the worst place to be is to be self-deceived into thinking that one is saved just because. And that is the case of these Jews. And that is why Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Test yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you indeed fail the test? Jesus points this out to them back in verse 31. If you continue in my word, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. He writes again in the epistle of 1 John, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. Examine yourself. Are you someone who walks with God, who desires to keep his word, who sees change and growth in your life? Because if you're not, and you've been here for a long time, You need to ask yourself, am I self-deceived? Am I truly a child of God? The fruit of false faith is slavery. Everyone who commits sin, Jesus says in verse 34, is a slave to sin. Those who suppress the truth in righteousness, those that do not know God are in bondage to sin. They're in bondage as they struggle without victory because of self-deception. You know, people think, boy, if I became a Christian, boy, I'm going to be in bondage. I'm going to be in bondage because I'll have to do all of these things. I'll feel so constricted. I'll feel so restricted. It's so narrow, et cetera, et cetera. But the exact opposite is true. The truth liberates. The truth brings freedom. The person who is living in sin, verse 34, is a slave to sin. 
And the warning is given in verse 35 and after, because only through Christ can salvation be secured, that there is true freedom. They were physically Abraham's descendants, Jesus says. They were physically descendants of Abraham, but their motives were to what? To kill the Son of God. And their motives of their heart betrayed the true condition of their souls. And that is the question that we ask ourselves. What is the true motive of my heart? What is the true desire of my heart? Does my heart yearn for God, to walk with God, to please God, to love God? What is the true condition of my heart? Because the Word of God pierces our heart and discerns our motives. We ask ourselves this so that we might know the truth of the Word of God sets us free changes our life. There was a prominent atheist named Matthew Paris in 2008. He wrote an essay about a strange phenomenon he had, he had seen in Africa. He wrote an essay for the Times entitled, Why Africa Needs God. And mind you, again, he was a hardened atheist, and he made it clear that he did not believe in God at all, but he admitted that Christianity made a tangible difference in the lives of people he knew in his boyhood hometown in Malawi and other countries across Africa. Not only did he admire the good work that Christians were doing to care for the poor and the sick, but he also liked the way they looked, he writes. The Christians were different, he wrote. Their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world. Whenever he entered a territory worked by missionaries, we had to acknowledge that something changed in the faces of the people we passed and spoke to. Something in their eyes. Can people see that the truth has liberated you, that there is a freedom, there is a joy, that there is a love that is unlike those who don't know God. Don't be deceived. The truth will set you free. The truth frees you from the guilt and the penalty of sin. The truth that Jesus came, the truth that Jesus died, for sin, the truth that if you place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, if you repent and turn from your sin and turn to Christ, and there's nothing you can do to save yourself, and if you cast yourself at the feet of the cross, at the foot of the cross, that God, in His grace and mercy, who extends to you that free gift of salvation, the truth that if you place your faith and trust in Him and Him alone, that God will save you and grant to you salvation. And then you will be free. If you've never ever made that decision, I invite you to do so because the scriptures say, today is the day of salvation. Today, you can be free. Today, 
The truth can set you free. Let's bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word, which declares to us what is true. All around our nation, O Father, there are people in bondage. I was encouraged, O God, to hear the gospel message preached primetime television last night, to hear the gospel message and to pray that people would come to know you, that they might be free. And Father, as bearers of your word, of the light of Christ, we pray, O Father, that we too might bear that message of the gospel, that people might be free. And I pray, Father, for anyone here who is still without you. Oh, God, I pray that you would save them, that they might come to know what true freedom is. In Jesus' name, amen.